According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, we are ready for really verses 17 and following, but uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 16 as we introduced last week the indestructible life. Hebrews seven sixteen. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for everything. And we thank You for teaching us so that we can know more and understand more. And through that teaching, Father, you increase our capacity to thank you even more. And we realize, Father, that we don't thank you enough, we don't praise you enough, because our finite understanding doesn't know enough. That, Father, you giveth and giveth and giveth again. And, Father, your grace never runs out. Grace can't run out. And I thank you for that. I thank you for eternal life. I thank you that not only does eternal life never end, and it's eternal, but it's also indestructible. And Father, we're celebrating our indestructible life, even as our Savior has given us. So I pray that we will understand this and live it out in our priesthood in Christ. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So there are things that are obvious and there are things that are more obvious. And we've been going through the obvious here in Hebrews 7. It's obvious, or it's evident in verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah. When you study his lineage, he's from Judah. He's a descendant of David. David was from the tribe of Judah. Bethlehem was in the land of Judah. And this is a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. The priestly tribe was Levi. And so if you're from the tribe of Judah and the priests have to come from Levi, well, then that leaves you out. You're not qualified. And the Levitical priesthood was granted on the basis of earthly requirements, mainly being the offspring of priests. And, uh, and if you were a Levite but not a descendant of Aaron, then you were a Levite, not a priest, as far as that goes. But Jesus was a priest, not a Levitical priest. His priesthood was greater. And that's what we're looking at here in the Melchizedek priesthood that he uh, was vested. And so it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah. And it's clearer still in verse 15. So it's even more evident. It is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. So what's happening here? And why was there a prophecy? Why was there a prophecy that there would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? It's because the law could make nothing perfect. And that's what we've seen again and again through this chapter and in uh, previous chapters. And it's coming up uh, throughout chapters 8, 9, and 10 that the law was not anything that could perfect anybody. And so by design, it was always had a, a weakness, if you will, an impotence by design. And that was to pave the way for us in Christ. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. So it is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, <clears throat> not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. And that's the beauty of it. And that's where we come in. That's how we get connected. Because we share this same priesthood, not on the basis of earthly requirement. Some of us are, you know, smarter. Some of us are better. Some of us are just humanly terms. Uh, there's relative scales for everything. But the earthly requirements are thrown out the window. Earthly requirements are going to be limiting. Earthly requirements are going to kind of set apart those who can versus those who can't. And, uh, but an, a non-earthly requirement, a heavenly requirement that is in fact a heavenly provision, a grace provision, something like an indestructible life. Oh, wait a minute. That's what I received when I believed in Jesus Christ. I got saved and I received this indestructible life. I received eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So what then keeps me from becoming a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? The answer is nothing. It's like the 
rhetorical question uh, that uh, the Ethiopian eunuch asked. He was on the road there and he meets up with Philip and and Philip's explaining to him the gospel and he says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And and Philip says, nothing, let's do this, right? We can say the same thing here in in Hebrews chapter 6. We can say, look, an indestructible life. What prevents me from functioning in this Melchizedek priesthood? And this is the blessing of what we have. So, (coughs) advancing the slides here. This indestructible life, only an indestructible life can facilitate an eternal priesthood. (coughs) In fact, if you're being inducted into an eternal priesthood, it makes sense that you have to have an indestructible life. Otherwise, you're going to die and so much for your eternal priesthood. Okay? It's like people that have this theological view that eternal life is only for this life. Wait a minute. What is that? You know, eternal life can't be for this life because this life isn't eternal. This life has a birth and, a, and, a, and an aging process and a death, and we all get there, rapture pending. And so the idea that eternal life is only for this life is ludicrous. And yet, there you have it. Um, but we have this indestructible life which equips us for this eternal priesthood. And only an indestructible life can facilitate an eternal priesthood. So we do receive this. We receive this life and we receive this priesthood. And last week I assigned the reading that nobody did, but it was from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 to 1 Peter 2.10. So join me in 1 Peter 1. And I don't know if anybody read it or not, just saying. That's, that's me I am the biggest pessimist you ever met. I'm probably three of the biggest pessimists you've ever met. All right. There may be a worse pessimist than me, but I doubt it. All right. Here is our priesthood. And this is so beautiful that uh, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, that's us. We're saved. We have a heavenly Father. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on this earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. This world calls those precious metals. The Bible calls them perishable. Silver and gold are perishable things. But with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He spent the unique, the, the most costliest price ever paid to save us. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is our born again status as church age believers. Now, it talks about the application of this now and uh, the fact that we are living stones. So, um, Verse 22, you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. If you missed last hour, I recommend you pick up on the, the, the uh, joy and crown kindred study that we did in uh, Philippians 4.1. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. All right, different seed. The Greek is sperma different seed, all right? There's the seed that birthed your physical body, and then there's the, speed that bir- the seed that birthed your eternal life. And the seed that birthed your eternal life is called imperishable, this indestructible life we have in Christ. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. This is our position in Christ. How beautiful is this? Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The plan of God does not end with your salvation. That's the beginning. You get saved. You have an indestructible life. Now you've got to be lusting after milk. You've got to be growing in the word of God if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. See, just get a taste for it and go, wow, I need that. And then get more and get more and get more. 
and coming to him as to a living stone. Now we get to our metaphor here on us as a temple. He's the stone, the living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones. And go ahead and include there choice and precious in the sight of God. That goes with living stone. As living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So this is our priesthood and it's based upon the incorruptible seed. It's based upon the indestructible life. This is what the book of Hebrews will then call the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. And this is who we are, living stones. Isn't this beautiful? And we're being built into this temple. And I love the fact that we're all custom stones. We're all different, that we're not all just, you know, the same shape and color of Lego block that's all just identical. We're not clones of one another. But Jesus knows where each particular stone fits, and it fits perfectly. And it wouldn't fit anywhere else but it fits perfectly right where he fits it. And that's why we, we submit ourselves to his will for uh, church membership, for, for ministry one to another. That this is the body that my stone fits with and it wouldn't fit in another ministry and it wouldn't fit, not at this time at least, it wouldn't fit anywhere else, but right here where he designed it to fit. And so we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God <clears throat> through Jesus Christ. No more dead sacrifices. It's the living sacrifice of our Christian walk in Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, what happens? The, The stone didn't change. Still the same stone, choice and precious in the sight of God, but for those who rejected him, the stone stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. All right. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood. You realize that can't apply to Israel? There is no way that can apply to Israel. Royalty belongs to Judah. Priesthood belongs to Levi. The idea of a royal priesthood in an Israel context is a, is a, is a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. Not so for the bride of Christ. Because we are royalty as heirs to the king. We are and bride of the, of the king. We're also a priest in our Melchizedek priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? What's the purpose of our priesthood? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's our purpose. This is what we do. We proclaim how excellent He is. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is our priesthood. And we have this life. We have this indestructible life. We have this priesthood. All right. So that bails you out for having not read your reading assignment from last week. Hebrews. (laughs) No, I believe you did. Because love believes all things. And love can believe what I can't believe. All right. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19 now. So we have this indestructible life, for it is attested of him you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, now we get a lot of one hand, other hand contrasts here. On the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God through which we draw near to God. So what are we dealing with here in these verses? We have the setting aside, not abolishing, the setting aside of Mosaic law. The setting aside is not the abolishing. That's key. Mosaic law could never and would never be abolished. Jesus promised this. And so this morning, we're actually going to compare some verses that some people struggle with. 
And they throw up their hands and they say, this seems to contradict. How can this be true? Mosaic law could never and would never be abolished. It served a purpose. And even in its obsolete condition, it still serves a purpose as it is set aside. Even in its obsolete condition, even in the church age, when we're not under law and we're under grace, the law is still good if you use it lawfully. Grace is better if you use it gracefully. But law is still good, even in the church age, when it's used lawfully, when it's used as intended, not to perfect anyone, but to point to grace, to point to faith, to point to Christ. Law remains in a, in a, uh, a valuable thing. And it's never abolished. It's fulfilled in Christ. And its requirements are fulfilled in us. That's a very beautiful truth as well. So let's start with Matthew 5. Because otherwise, um, we, we do end up with a conundrum and somebody might ask. And so um, since Hebrews does say that it's obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear, that, uh, that that is true. God has not put a single lie anywhere in the Bible. So that is true. But it is also true that it will not be abolished. So Matthew five seventeen and 18. And even when it says what it says, we ask ourselves, is that what it's saying? And I think sometimes we, uh, we just don't read closely enough or we fail to appreciate context. Matthew 5. <clears throat> this is the Sermon on the Mount where he is expanding on all kinds of Old Testament themes and bringing it into a kingdom reality. In a lot of ways, this is... Uh, this is the uh, constitution, if you will, of the, of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so you start with the Beatitudes, and then you get to salt and light, and you get to um, these things here in, down through verse 16. Then in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. All right? Law is not to be abolished. It is to be fulfilled. And uh, this is the, the great evil of what replacement theology does, because it just abolishes and replaces uh, the, you know, a failure uh, on Israel's part and starts over with the church. That's not what the book of Hebrews does. That's not what the New Testament does. That's not what the church does. We want to be clear. So do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law but now notice, until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. And so now I've got a parameter. Now I've got a context. Now I have, uh, I have an idea about ever that it's not ever and ever. It's just ever until, notice, all is accomplished. And as a contrast here with heaven and earth passing away, well, that's going to happen, is it not? Heaven and earth will pass away. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That, uh, that too has been promised. And so let's understand what's happening here with law. That law serves a purpose. That even when it's old and obsolete, it still serves a lingering purpose. And until such time as uh, heaven and earth pass away, uh, it will not be forgotten. It, that the requirements of the law are going to be fulfilled in us who walk according to Christ, who walk according to faith, not according to the flesh. We'll see that as well. Luke 16. Let me not stop there. Let's go on to 19 and 20 here in Matthew 5. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So don't use our position in grace to say, Law's out the window. I can fornicate all I want, steal all I want, lie all I want, and do all these things. Don't become a, a licentious uh, antinomian and teach others to do the same. That's not grace. That's perversion. So whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so we recognize this. Theirs is a righteousness based upon law, based upon works, based upon human effort. Ours is a righteousness based on grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That it's a faith response to the promise of God. That it's a faith acceptance of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. So that's the message from Matthew 5. All right, Luke 16 is very similar, but I think uh, just slight detail um, differences. In Luke 16, it's not in a Sermon on the Mount context. It's um, we're leading up to the rich man and Lazarus. We've got, an un- we've got a bunch of parables here. And um, starting in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. As he says, you cannot serve God and mammon. And uh, they were like, huh, we sure are. What do you know? What are you talking about? So he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. All the things that humanity wants to boast in in worldly wisdom, they make God want to puke, right? They're just detestable. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. And so this is what happens when doctrine gets abused. This is what happens when scripture gets twisted and manipulated. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. To fail, okay? And the reason why it doesn't fail is because it's fulfilled in Christ. And so it's eternally victorious when Jesus Christ is eternally victorious at the cross. And so after the cross, we can say that it's obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear, but that doesn't mean it's failed. That doesn't mean that uh, we can ignore it because it's still good if you use it lawfully. We want to be clear on that as well. The law served a purpose and still serves a purpose. Galatians 3, 19 through 24. We taught this in the Galatians series. It served a purpose and it still serves a purpose. Back then and still today. You know, nowhere in the New Testament did Jesus ever say, go ahead and throw away your Old Testament, we're done with that now. (laughs) No. The Old Testament is unfolded in the New. So Galatians 3, 19 through 20, why the law then? You know, uh, we had this great promise in Abraham all the I will promises and bless those who bless you and make you a great nation and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's just stick with that. Let's just stick with promise and who needs this law thing anyway? Why was the law given 430 years after Abraham? Did it abrogate Abrahamic promise? Not at all. And so that's uh, some of the argumentation there in Galatians three fifteen through 18. But then in verse 19, it says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So it's just an in the meantime kind of thing. The Abrahamic covenant was to Abraham and to his seed. And so while we were waiting for the seed to come, law was given so that something could be taught and presented. A contrast could be laid out because of transgressions and a mediator and a need. So a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, here we go again, this is one of those not true circumstances, but if it was true, then if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then Righteousness would indeed have been based on law. It's the same argument the author of Hebrews made, right? Law makes nothing uh, perfect. For it's evident if law could make something perfect, what need was there for Christ to go to the cross? If the law could make things perfect, then forget the cross. Just keep people under law and they can save themselves. If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the truth is, that's not the kind of law that was given. A law was given that cannot impart life. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, 
The best part about law is that it makes all of us sinners. It makes all of us convicted sinners. It makes all of us undeniably fallen in God's sight. Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which is later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And that's the whole point. That's why Israel was given a law. No Gentile nation was given a law, but Israel was given this law, condemning all humanity in Adam. What a blessing. And even in its obsolete condition, it still serves a a purpose as it is set aside. Notice, not abolished, but set aside. Set aside because something better has been provided. When something better has been provided, you set that aside, right? Obviously. The phrase I keep referring to actually comes at the end of Hebrews chapter 8. And um, don't be offended or take this personally. Some people can read this verse and say, wait a minute. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Okay? So don't take that personally. I wasn't looking at anyone when I read that. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And this is talking about law. And it used to be something that really, really bothered me. In fact, I hated this verse. Um, As a teenager, as a seminary student, early in my ministry until I really studied it out because I thought it was wrong. I thought it 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 was inaccurate. I didn't like the ready-to-disappear thing. Uh, like growing old, are you kidding? It's, it's done gone. I mean, Jesus went to the cross 30 years before this book got written. Okay, at least, maybe, well, yeah, 25 to 30 years before Hebrews was written. Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent in two. Uh, I, I'm willing to say, right, boom, right there, then and there. Mosaic law is not obsolete and growing old. It's, it's, it's gone, bury the thing, we're done with it now. That's not what the author says. The author says it's not buried yet. It's only mostly dead, right? It's not buried yet. It's obsolete, yes. It's growing old. It's ready to disappear. Or fixing to, as you say here in the South. It's fixing to disappear. Well, why hasn't it disappeared yet? Why is there an obsolete remnant left over? And what is its lingering purpose that still on goes? In fact, it survives the church age. What happens the morning after the rapture? Israel is reverted back to their stewardship again. And what happens to Mosaic law as it's applied to Israel? It's back into effect again. It's still obsolete. It's still growing old. They don't know that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. They're going to come to learn that, particularly as they get saved in the tribulation. So really, uh, it's fun to read Hebrews. Once we get done with Hebrews, you know what we really, really ought to do? Well, who wouldn't? Go back to the beginning and then teach it a second time, but from the perspective of a tribulational saint, of someone that is battling Antichrist, to someone that's on, on the threat of, of, uh, of execution and martyrdom. I believe this is going to be the powerful text that's going to carry them through because it takes all of their Torah, it takes all of their law, and then brings it into a Melchizedek priesthood and says, do you know what Jesus did when he died on the cross? And it's going to give them the strength they need to endure. 1 Timothy 1.8, where we see Paul tells Timothy that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 1 Timothy 1.8. So he tells Timothy to stay faithful, keep about your father's business. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But some men, straying from these things, have turned aside a fruitless discussion. Men that used to be solid Bible teachers, and now they're off in the weeds somewhere. And it's just heartbreaking 
because they're wrecking their Christian walk and they're destroying a flock while they're at it. Wanting to be teachers of the law. And when was this written? 30 plus years after the cross. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And just because they don't know what they're talking about doesn't keep them from talking, which we see all the time. (laughs) All right. This is a political season after all. There are all kinds of commercials out there. But we know, Timothy, you know this, I know this. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. See, here's the thing. People want to take grace and use it lawfully, and they want to take law and use it gracefully. Don't mix your law and your grace. Use law lawfully, and it's great. But use grace gracefully, and it's greater. All right, the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, immoral men, those are fornicators and homosexuals and kidnappers, liars and perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Law is great for that crowd. And it's great for us to say, look, I'm not condemning you. I want to tell you about a Savior. All right? Law condemns you, but grace can save you. Let me show you what this gospel is all about. So use the law lawfully. Use it for its intended target, and then take them to grace. According to the glorious gospel, there we are, of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So even though it's obsolete, it's growing old, it's ready to disappear, it hadn't disappeared yet, we still have an Old Testament, so use it. And then take them to grace. Use it for what it was designed to use it for. Don't use it and tell them if they keep it, they can save themselves. That's, that's insane. But use it to show that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You don't have to get through all ten commandments and you'll hit one that somebody has broken at least once in their life. And say, alright, you deserve the lake of fire. Now let me tell you about grace. And take it from there. It's a beautiful thing. So law, this is not a, a contrast. This is not... Uh, Hebrews is not saying anything different than what Jesus said. Jesus said law would not pass away, but it is set aside. It is set aside when a better hope is brought in. It is set aside when a better hope is brought in. So it's still at the side. It's just not at the forefront of our thinking. It's, it's available. We can use it lawfully, but it is set aside. It's not at the forefront of our endeavors when a better hope is brought in. And I love the uses of hope. I love in this chapter, in chapter 8, in the coming chapters, the, uh, the benefits that we have in the church is that we function in a living hope. Israel uh, did not have a living hope. Their hope was all future. Their hope was coming. Their hope was someday. Our hope is today. Our hope is right here, right now. It is a living hope. It is this grace in which we stand. So um, you might recall back in chapter 6, verse 9 and verse 19. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation that we're speaking in this way. Remember that? What do we have besides being saved? Isn't that enough? No, it's not enough. That's just the beginning. We've got a whole lot more after that. In fact, we stand in a position of hope. This hope we have, verse 19. See, we have this unchangeable promise this it's impossible for god to lie we can take refuge we can take hold of the hope set before us we hold it now this hope we have is an anchor of the soul it gives us stability now a hope both sure and steadfast and one which is entered within the veil where we are now and so really and you might even ask this if you're tempted to return to legalism or tempted to abandon grace. Uh, I mean, if you're going to go back to a, a, a law kind of operation, you realize that means you're setting aside your present hope, your living hope. You're going back to a law operation hoping to earn or deserve something someday. That's tragic. We can set that aside and embrace hope right here, right now. Not because we've deserved it, but because Christ accomplished it and gave it to us. Chapter 8 and verse 6, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, 
No, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant. I mean, not saying Moses was crummy. He did what he did and that was great. He gave the law. But he was mediator of an inferior covenant. Christ is mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Not shadows, not someday, substance today. What a privilege for us. And so we have this living hope. Uh, Hebrews 11.40 This great hall of fame of faith and men of whom the world was not worthy. Tremendous heroes. I can't wait to meet them. You know, I want to I mean, maybe it's silly or whatever, but I, I want to know, you know, the, the lion's den. What was that like? You know, when I was a kid, I used to sleep with my cat and that was kind of fun. But could you imagine? You got lions. How cool is that? Anyway, maybe he'll tell me. Or maybe he'll just say, dumb question, tired of hearing it. All right. But all these heroes, men of whom the world is not worthy, and yet all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. None of them lived long enough to enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And they died, they, went to, they didn't even get to go to heaven. They died and they went to Abraham's bosom, waiting for their sin to be removed. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, their sin can't be removed. So we have a better hope. No wonder Mosaic law is set aside. Colossians 1.27 and 1 Peter 1.3, likewise. So it's not just the author of Hebrews. We got Paul in Colossians and we got Peter. This is the unanimous testimony of the New Testament. Colossians 1.27 Verse 24 says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Paul says, I'm holding up my end, I'm doing my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, this is our priesthood, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. Church was withheld from Old Testament doctrine. But now it has been manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known, notice now, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. They didn't have that sense in the Old Testament. Also, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know how powerful that is? From that split second you believed and received eternal life, you received Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. For Israel, hope was someday. For us, hope is now. From the moment you received eternal life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Of course, Mosaic Law is set aside. Mosaic Law was a shadow, it was a picture. It was looking ahead. Mosaic Law said, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. Well, that's a dumb thing to operate by if Christ is in me, the hope of glory. How powerful is this? So we proclaim Him. Remember, what's the purpose of our priesthood? To proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man. You know, whoever wants to hear, preaching to all creation, I should be going to hell, but God save me. Let me tell you about my Savior. Every man and with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving. Grace doesn't let, make you turn you into a slug. I think law turns you into a slug. Because you work hard to measure up, but then after a while you've been working so hard you think you do measure up, and then you start kind of slacking a bit because you figure, hey, I'm better than the next guy. I'm better than him. And so you start to think, I'm all right, I've made it. In grace, when you know that it's all, you know, Christ's riches, man, we just labor and labor and labor. 
striving according to His power which mightily works within because it's not our power. We just stay obedient and say, yes, Lord, and He does more. Yes, Lord, and He does more. And then we get tired and we say, yes, Lord, and He does more because it's not our power. If it was up to us, we'd have been exhausted years ago, but it's not our power. We say, yes, Lord. He opened the door, we say, yes, Lord, we stay obedient. Laboring, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. It never runs out. When we've exhausted our store of endurance, I think I just heard that. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. And the verse doesn't stop there, does it? Born again to what? To a living hope. Don't you just love that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We walk in this newness of life. This is our living hope. This is our blessing. Not living under law, trying to earn something someday. But receiving God's grace and living this living hope, it's, it's beautiful. All right, set aside. Now, just as law came after promise and did not nullify promise, we saw that a little bit ago in Galatians 3, the better hope priesthood does not nullify law, but accomplishes what law could never do. Understand the difference? It's not nullifying law. Adultery is still adultery, murder is still murder, theft is still theft, lies are still lies. There's still valid uh, infractions, there's still sins in the sight of God. But our better hope priesthood does what law could never do. And the reason why it came in this sequence is vital. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God doesn't change, but boy, He put into effect a changing program He put into effect the dispensations, the ages, a changing program. See, Adam and Eve weren't the first pastor and pastor's wife. Cain and Abel weren't the first preacher kids. All right, We had the age of the Gentiles, the age of the Jews, the church age, and we're not going to be around forever. Rapture pending, we're done today, right? And then Israel gets their stewardship back, and then a coming kingdom, and then new heavens and a new earth. This progression is, is critical. It was necessary that God could unfold Himself in this way and it's critical for us to understand all these things, to know our place, to understand the will of God. So, just as law came before promise and didn't nullify promise, Scripture's very clear on that, the better hope priesthood comes along after the the Mosaic law and it does not nullify Mosaic law. It does not nullify the Levitical priesthood. There will be Levitical priests in the Millennial Kingdom. In fact, one line, the line of Zadok, is highlighted as having preeminence in the Levitical priesthood offering Levitical sacrifices in the the, uh, Millennial Kingdom. So this better hope priesthood does not nullify Mosaic law, but it accomplishes what Mosaic law could never do. So let's understand this. Romans 3.31, Romans 10.4, Hebrews 7.19. And some of these, you probably know them all anyway. They've probably been Bible verses for you, memory verses since you were a kid. I don't know, maybe not. So Romans 3, all of sin and falling short of the glory of God and uh, being justified as a gift by His grace. These marvelous uh, promises. Where is boasting then? By what kind of law of works? No, by faith. And then the, the chapter closes. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Just because we're church-age believer priests and and we are saved by grace through faith, we do not nullify the law. We establish the law. We stand as the shining examples of those that that are eternally saved apart from the law. Okay? That doesn't abolish the law. It allows the law to be used lawfully to show its purpose. Chapter 10 and verse 4. Ten four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. Ten four. <laughs> Amen.
back in my law enforcement 10 code days. What a great 10-4 application. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And I want to show, where am I going to show this? Did I put this in there? I intended to. There's another verse. I apologize for leaving it out. There's another verse. The um, hmm, the requirements of the law are now fulfilled in us. I'll, I'll make sure that's in there next week. I really wanted to put it in here this week. All right. Or maybe I did. I'm just not seeing it. Maybe I outsmarted myself. Follow the slideshow. See what you put in there. <laughs> see what happens next. So understand, law has not been abolished. Law has not been nullified. Law, law is still a thing. It's just set aside. We can use it lawfully. It's obsolete and growing old. It's ready to disappear, but it's still here at our side. We can, we can grab it and use it again, using it lawfully, orienting it towards those for whom it was designed, and then through it, taking them from law to grace and getting them saved. Okay? It's a marvelous way to use, to use law on that basis. That's the one I was looking for. Roman, thank you. Romans 8, 4. So that the requirements of the law, yeah, verse 3. What the law could not do, weak as it did through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that, not so that we can become law keepers, so that the requirements of the law, requirement, singular, requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We are not law keepers. None of us can, none of us ever will. But the requirement of the law, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, the requirement of the law was fulfilled in Christ. We now walk in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So yes, thank you for that. That's Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Now, 20 through 22. Hebrews 7, verses 20 through 22. Inasmuch, all right, so we have a better hope. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. How near did law get you to God? How near, if you were a law keeper, how near could you get to God? Not very near at all. One guy, one day a year, could get pretty near. One, one guy, the high priest, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, he could enter within the veil, he could enter, he could go from the holy place to the holy of holies, he could stand before that Shekinah glory and not drop dead, he could uh, apply the oil and, and the sacrifice to the mercy seat, all by himself. One guy, one day a year. Everybody else could get kind of close, not really, but they could get to the outer holy place if you were a priest or a Levite. You could get to the courtyard. You could be in the neighborhood if you were Jewish. <laughs> All right. Yeah, if, if you were just, uh, you know, Benjamin from the tribe of Benjamin, you know, forget going to the holy place. And if you were a Gentile, wow. So how close can you get? But in the church age, how close can we get? Well, it's pretty close if it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's pretty close. Christ in you, you in Him, entering within the veil that is His flesh, standing before the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Because we have a high priest who didn't go in all by himself. He went in as a forerunner. The expectation being that His body is with Him, that the head and the body worship together before the Father. For such the Father seeks to be His worshipers. So, in bringing in a better hope through which we draw near to God. And we have this nearness. What an intimacy. What a blessing. All right. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, even better. Inasmuch as it was not without an oath. So cancel out the double negatives and what's it saying? <laughs> not without an oath. 
Inasmuch as it came with an oath, the God who cannot lie took an oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In other words, he wrote Psalm 110 verse 4 and put it in the Bible. And he took an oath. The God who cannot lie put himself under an oath. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. You know, what oath was spoken when Aaron was made high priest? What oath was spoken when, when the Levites were set apart as the service tribe? Was there any kind of oath spoken when Aaron was made a priest? Was there any oath at all that was spoken when Levites were set apart as the service tribe? Well, not in terms of the priesthood, no. But there was an oath spoken. We've already studied it in Hebrews. The oath that was spoken was, Surely I have sworn in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. (laughs) Because that Exodus generation was rebellious. That wilderness generation died. They spent 40 years waiting for them all to die so that only Caleb and Joshua could lead the, the conquest in. But there was no oath that made Aaron a high priest. The Lord didn't swear to make Aaron an eternal priest because he wasn't an eternal priest. He was a lifelong priest. Okay? Lifetime appointment, as it were. Just make, you know, the whole... This thing with Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court just makes you sick that such ugliness could happen and, and so forth. And then the critics are all, ooh, you don't understand. This is, this is serious. This is the most serious thing our country can possibly face. This is so serious because it is a lifetime appointment. And I'm like, oh, it's only a lifetime appointment? So it's a temporary job, you're saying? Okay. It's a lifetime appointment? Let me tell you. People are getting worked up over things that aren't eternal. Let's not get worked up over things until they're eternal issues that we can represent our Savior and we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into light. Otherwise, is it really worth getting worked up over? So now the uh, selection of Levi and the ordination of Aaron, they were oath-free events. Oath-free events. And if I may, I'll assign you some more reading. You won't do this week either. (laughs) The selection of Levi and the ordination of Aaron, these were oath-free events. And just read Exodus 28, the whole chapter if you want. Read uh, Exodus 29. If you don't want to read the whole chapter, just kick it off with 28.1. And then flip down to 29, and you'll see in verses 43 and 44. I guess I can grab those. Um, But, I mean, I'm asking you to read for something that's not there. And as you read, it's not there. And yeah, that's an argument from silence, but it's, it's... the, the silence is being observed because of the spoken vow that is in contrast with the unspoken non-vow. The fact that Jesus as a Melchizedek priest was vested in that office by an oath, an eternal oath from the God who cannot lie. Aaron was not vested into office by an oath. And so um, in Exodus 28.1 it says, Bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And so one brother and four nephews, and, and Moses is going to take them and ordain all four, or all five. And we know it's not an eternal priesthood because two of these guys are about to get killed. Uh, Aaron, uh, the, the sin unto death was applied to uh, Nadab and Abihu uh, very quickly when they bring strange fire before the Lord. And so uh, there's no oath. And they get garments and they get all these other things, but, um, and you can read through that, but there's no oath. When you get down to 29 in verses 43 and 44, and there's going to be a lot of sacrifices to consecrate these sons. 
And a whole lot of death is going to happen so these sons can function in their priesthood. And uh, they're going to, starting in verse 35, they're going to be ordained through seven days. Each, uh, each day you shall offer for a bowl for a sin offering for atonement. You shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. You shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. And then more offerings, more death. So that's, uh, that's one a day as a bull. And then two um, one-year-old lambs every day, starting in verse 38. There's a lot of dead animals. Uh, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. One lamb you shall offer in the morning. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. There shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil, one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. There was wine with all of these as well. And then the other lamb at twilight, the same drink offering. So all of this, it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. Any oath in all of this? I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests with me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. All right? It's consecrated by his presence, but he makes no oath whatsoever. There is no oath in the consecration of this priesthood. You can read uh, over in Numbers 8, and there's uh, information there as it applies to the Levites, how they were set apart. And again, there's no oath. They, uh, they didn't have a land grant. They didn't have territory. They had to be fed because they didn't have farms. They didn't have flocks. But uh, the offerings were brought to them, and then they would eat. Like I said, there was a lot of dead animals. Well, that's a good thing because there's a lot of hungry Levites <laughs> and priests. And so uh, other than the whole burnt offering, which the whole thing went up to the Lord, most of these offerings, the, the choice portions, were for the priests. They could eat, they could fellowship, they could dine with the, the people that brought the offerings. It was a great time for feasting and for doctrinal studies. But understand the intense nature of God placing Himself under an oath we actually taught this back in chapter 6, so it shouldn't be an alien idea. The intense nature of God placing Himself under an oath communicates the greatness of our Savior's priesthood. In so much, in so much, to the degree that in so much, we say here, as it was not without an oath, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant so much the more. And really, starting next week when we come to these next verses, this becomes the, this is, this is critical or otherwise we don't have eternal security. If he's not the mediator of a better covenant, if he's not the high priest forever, then are we saved forever? Well, verse 25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Save to the uttermost. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Phase 1 salvation, phase 2 salvation, phase 3 salvation, and He accomplishes all of it because of His eternal priesthood. It's the basis of our eternal life. In other words, if we don't grasp this, then the basis for our eternal life is it's ungrounded at that point. Alright. So that's... Uh, takes us down through verse 22. How about that? He is the guarantee of a better covenant. Next week we'll come back and we'll start looking at the former versus the other. Again, we've got on the one hand, on the other hand. <laughs> you know, like the author of Hebrews is going to run out of hands before he's done. This is just, he just likes the idiom, I guess. Um, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers. Well, yeah, because they kept dying. You know how many high priests they had in the Old Testament? One after another, after another, after another. They were prevented by death from continuing. Oh, Aaron's dead. I guess we need a new one. Okay. 
but Jesus? <laughs> once and for all. Once and for all. Father, I thank you for this study. I thank you for how powerful it is, how deep it is, and yet how simple it is. In so many ways, Father, you, you took the, the depth of Melchizedek doctrine, which the slow of hearing has a difficult time understanding. And yet you take this powerful Melchizedek priesthood and you relate it in obvious ways. And the, and the author of Hebrews here is just walking us through the chapter. This is obvious. This is more obvious. This is, this is what everybody understands. And, and clearly uh, these priests keep dying. They can't continue. But our Savior lives evermore. And how simple is that? And how beautiful is that? I thank you for our risen Savior. I thank you that we uh, are risen in Him. I thank you that we walk in this, in this uh, living sacrifice. I thank you that we function in this Melchizedek priesthood. I thank you, Father, that when we fully comprehend everything you've given, you've given and given and given again, it never runs out. And the more you give, the more we appreciate. So, Father, as we study, as we grow, as, as you increase our capacity our capacity to praise you, our capacity to thank you, our capacity to serve you, our capacity to give. Father, we we want to give. We want to give so freely because we've been given so much. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.